You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. It's now time for A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. From amazing stories to colorful personalities, join us as we go in-depth with the men and women that make up the Oakland Athletics Organization. It all starts right now. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend here on A's Cast powered by TuneIn. And here's the deal. I know I have all these great big name and interviews that we, we, we love to have here for you on A's Unfiltered, but a lot of them are talking about the wild card. So uh, bottom line is, I, I doubt as an A's fan at this point you want to hear about the wild card. So uh, we're going we're gonna to put those on the shelf. We're going to put those on the back burner, and we're going to give you some interviews that you're really, really going to like. We're going to have Tony La Russa, the Hall of Famer. Tony obviously means so much to this organization, and it's been a celebration this year about him being an A's Hall of Famer and celebrating his 1989 team. Barry Zito has just come out with a book. Eric Chavez is going to stop by, one of the great defensive third basemen in the history of the game. And then a special treat. My old friend Ned Coletti, a guy that I used to interview all the time back in the day, back in the day when I was on KMBR, and he was assistant general manager of the San Francisco Giants. And then he'd come on my show when he was the GM of the Los Angeles Dodgers. He's now a scout for the San Jose Sharks. It's a very interesting story, so we'll also have Ned. But how are we starting this thing out today? Well, Tony Larusa, Baseball Hall of Famer, a three-time World Series champion, four-time manager of the year. He's in the A's Hall of Fame. He's in the St. Louis Cardinals Hall of Fame. And, of course, in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And he should be in the Hall of Fame off the field for everything he does for people and for animals. He is truly one of the greats. And he went into the A's Hall of Fame, and here is our conversation with Tony as he's about to get on a flight in Boston. Well, we're honoring a terrific Hall of Fame class coming up here at the Coliseum, and it's so fitting that going in with Mark McGuire as we talk to Big Mac about Tony La Russa, how special his time was here in Oakland. So the two of them going in is really special, and Tony joins us here on A's Cast Live. Tony, thank you so much for taking the time, and congratulations getting into the A's Hall of Fame. Well, thank you. It was just an amazing opportunity to walk into that situation. There was so much talent there, and yet the front office and the ownership, it was a perfect yeah, when I think about the Haas family, talk about the Haas family because I know what they meant to you and what they meant to this franchise, and they always were trying to give you everything you needed to win. Well, they just did it in a, in a way of of same kind of culture you try to build on the team, a family thing where there's a brotherhood, you know, we're all for one, one for all, and, and that's how the Haas's, you know, Wally and, and Walter, they made you – want to be a part of it uh they wanted they earned their your respect and trust they did everything they could for you but you know there were no pushovers but they just genuinely cared for you 
and uh, we we tried to return as much as we could to him. Yeah, so this Saturday when you go in and Wally's going to present his father, Walter Haas Jr., you know, we'll talk about this and also Big Mac, but first start with Mr. Haas. What does it mean for you to go in with him? Perfect. You know, am I just I think you talking about with Mark or with Walter? With Walter. We'll start with Walter. Oh, well, I just I said, you know, you had a box of what ownership, a bunch of boxes and you put check marks of this, that, and the other one. I mean, Walter checked every box, and uh, he had a way about him that was very unusual. He was very nice. You could tell he was really smart. He ran a great company, but uh, he had uh, a way of endearing himself to these players. A lot of them, have, you know, they had a little arrogance to him and some egos, but nobody wanted to disappoint him, which nobody wanted to take advantage of that niceness. It was a terrific quality that he had. We recently had Mark McGuire on, and he called you a second father. I mean, the time that you guys had in Oakland, the time that you had in St. Louis, and then the fact that you brought Mark McGuire back into baseball as a coach. Talk about going in with Mark and that special bond that you have with him. Well, it's, uh, you know, Mark is a very special guy because besides that great talent, you know, he was one of the best teammates you can find. I mean, he was beloved by everybody because he was he's truly unselfish. He wanted to contribute. Uh, he could definitely produce, but he was there for for his teammates. I mean, whatever they needed, he tried to provide it. And you know, to have a guy as a rookie, he was a very talented rookie. You know, broke the record just a long time for home runs. But you watch him mature as a person and as a player, as a hitter. That's why at the end there, you know, asked him to be the hitting coach because he got really, really smart about the whole thing, what the swing looked like, how the how to prepare and how to compete against a pitcher and make adjustments. So it's just a combination with Mark is a combination of his uh, professional talent, but his personal qualities are just about exactly what you need. You know, the great thing having him on was that there's a lot of people, a lot of our younger audience had really never heard him speak before. And one of the questions I asked him was how proud he was of that home run race that a lot of people believe him, Sammy Sosa. You can also throw in Cal Ripken Jr. in the streak help bring people back to baseball. And he said how proud he was of that and that people stop him all the time to thank him. You lived through that. What what was going through the what was it like going through that with him, that home run chase that was just so amazing? Well I had teammates on that Cardinal talk and you know, we had some great times and had some you know, some October appearances and everything. But they say that, that day in and day out drama of Mac and Sue and Sammy was the, probably the most memorable thing that they went through because it was so exciting. Uh, it was very glamorous, and it was really good for baseball. It got people energized again. Uh, I think the thing, you know, you had two different guys. Sammy's very outgoing. You know, he he loved the publicity. Sam, Mark is really, uh, you know, he, he's a little shy and doesn't like the spotlight. And what I saw him do was emerge as a, a spokesman for baseball, you know, because that's what he had to do, and he became a leader and, and, uh, and that's just part of his development. So here again, like I said, I saw him as a young guy, and I, I saw him become a father of many kids. This guy's come a long way, and all of it's good. I think about your time with Dave Duncan, the special relationship, and if there was a, a way to get a pitching coach into the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, he'd definitely be in. Talk about your relationship and how the two of you really changed baseball, especially when looking at how to utilize a bullpen. 
Dave and I, uh, some fans know, some don't, but, you know, we both signed with Kansas City one year apart in the 60s. So we really knew each other for a long time. And he had a solid major league career. I did not. But from those early days and all the way through the end of our time together, Dave was a very, very intelligent man, uh, uh, very studious. And uh, he he could be anything he wanted in uniform. He could have been a manager, could have been a hitting coach. Uh, but he chose pitching. And he brought a level of sophistication as far as a lot of stuff that you're doing now with with these percentages, Dave did manually because he charted everything and then he knew how to interpret the data. And one of his great genius qualities was that Dave could make whatever the uh, information was, he would apply it, tailor make it to, you know, Kurt Young was different from Dave Stewart and Bob Walsh was different from Mike Moore. So uh, to watch Dave, uh, you know, here again, develop as a coach toward the end, he was one of the first ones to use video extensively. And uh, he actually did some computer work and everything. So he's the complete pitching coach, the best, the greatest, but not to disrespect anybody else, but he is the greatest pitching coach of all time. And hopefully there's a move, um, uh, there's a movement at times to recognize some way coaches in the Hall of Fame. And uh, I hope it happens sooner, better, and later. And Dave will be definitely be one of the ones that gets recognized. You know, I think about some of the guys you brought in who were projects that he worked with whether it's Dave Stewart, who is now in the A's Hall of Fame, or Dennis Eckersley, who's also in the A's Hall of Fame and also in the Baseball Hall of Fame. You know, you had guys that came to you that needed help, that need to be changed, and you helped turn them into world champions and even Hall of Famers. Talk about those kind of projects that you guys changed the you, – you changed these guys' lives. Well, that's why he was such an incredible asset to the organization. You know, if you're a front office guy, you know, the general manager, and you had your your operations people scouting and so forth, if if they saw a pitcher that had potential but had a problem, you didn't have to try to figure out if the problem matched your pitching coach's uh, skill set. Because Dave literally could work with any and help everybody that he ever came into. And, and through his entire career, he went to St. Louis, did the same thing. And even when we first got to, together, I used to get so irritated that they say he didn't work with kids, young pitchers. Well, he worked with whoever the organization had. But in Chicago, you know, he worked with guys in their 20s that won Cy, Cy Young and won in the 20 games. So he was a complete pitching coach. And uh, it's a luxury for an organization to have a guy that can deal with anything that a pitcher has that's a problem. You, you don't have to cherry pick it because uh, the guy is missing – uh, something that he can't can't provide to a pitcher. Well, Saturday night when you're getting inducted, you're going to be inducted at Ricky Henderson Field. Ricky uh-huh. Henderson is truly one of the greatest players who have ever played. What was it like your relation with your relationship with him, and what was it like managing him? Uh, well, my first ten years, first of the White Sox at the A's, and he had gone to New York. He was the opponent. And you recognize that he's the most dangerous player of our generation. And he could beat you in so many ways. And then when Sandy pulled that that, that deal off in uh, the middle of 89, that made us a perfect club. I mean, I put that team against anybody anytime. And Ricky was, I mean, people, they game planned to prevent him, and you couldn't prevent him. And what you found, once you got him on your side, you know, a great sense of humor. He really liked to connect with his teammates. And as a manager, I just think you had to respect that Ricky really knew 
his body. And uh, and one of the things, every once in a while, you know, he could feel his legs get tight and he need a couple of days, and you gave it to him. But just communicating with him, you recognize how smart he was and really a good person who's very, really much loved by his teammates. And when you think back of those teams that went to three straight World Series, where we talked about Big Mac and Ricky and Jose and Stu and Welch and Moore and Eckersley, you had so much talent. What was it like to manage so many great players at one time? You had so much leadership on that team that, you know, I, I half kid, but it's mostly true that you know, job, my job was to tell who we were playing at what time it started. I mean, just let them go. I mean, they were really, really good. And, uh, you know, I'm personally, because I think I could have done much better. That team had to have won more than just the one championship, but it's in the book. And, uh, uh, but that period of excellence right there, uh, they, well, you couldn't look at anything that club needed because it had everything. And Chris, I, by the way, I, I, I'm, right now I'm flying, starting to fly to the West Coast. I'm getting to the airport, so I'm going to have to cut off. So I'm sorry. No problem, Tony. We always appreciate the time. Enjoy Saturday going into the Ace Hall of Fame because you definitely deserve it. All right, thank you, man. Look forward to it. The legend, Tony LaRussa. How about one of the best left-handers in the history of A's baseball? He was a three-time All-Star, AL Cy Young Award winner in 2002, led the American League in wins in 2002, and he was a World Series champion in 2012. We all love Barry Zito. He is a super, super cool guy. But he had some demons. And we've talked about it on A's Cast Live with him. He's come out with the book Curveball, How I Discovered True Fulfillment After Chasing Fortune and Fame. He truly bears his soul in this. I have not read it yet, but you'll listen to this interview. You'll know how much this book how he had to dig deep inside, look himself in the mirror. He had a terrific career. Sometimes I think he downplays it, but Barry Zito was very good. Here is one of the great A's left-handers of all time. Barry Zito, Chris Townsend with The Athletics. How are you? Hey, Chris. Really sorry I was uh, late, man. Put his, uh, <laughs> putting my kids down in a little bit of a blur here for a minute, so I apologize. Hey, life changes fast when you got young kids, right? Oh, yeah, man. It's, uh, it gets primal, that's for sure. So the book is finally out, Curveball, How I Discovered True Fulfillment After t- Chasing Fortune and Fame. How much fun is it putting out a book? Uh, <laughs> well, at this juncture, it is definitely fun. You know, uh, for the last two years, it's been quite a challenge to, you know, just kind of go through the process. But I think more emotional than I ever thought it would be, just really getting back into the experience you know a lot of the pain and stuff how therapeutic was it for you to do this book and to now finally have your story out it was really therapeutic i mean what i didn't realize and i think what's good about any of us kind of going back to old experiences is to you have a perspective that comes with age and wisdom and i actually never realized you know just the huge impact that my father had on on every side of my life and uh you know a lot of good but some bad too and you know so i really kind of illustrate in the book of just how i I realized i was trying to win his approval and a lot of times pitching you know trying to be good at baseball really to get approval from him and and you know feel loved from my father which is uh (laughs) like i said that's not something i realized i was doing really yeah, that's heavy stuff, and, and to share that w- with your fans, because you know, especially on this side of the Bay, how much uh, A's fans love you, 
You, you know, that, that that's something that, you know, that's not easy to do to bare your soul in front of everyone. No, I mean, I mean, it's not easy. And I, you know, I guess for whatever reason, I just feel there's just kind of been a weight on my conscience because I know that there was just some things I wasn't able to say in post-game interviews sometimes. And, you know, when you're playing, you kind of maintain this armor of, you know, whether it's confidence or, or strength or whatever you're trying to portray when you're kind of in the gladiator arena, you know, but now that I'm not, you know, in that, I definitely feel like there's some things I just needed to say. And, and so it was really great to be able to say those things in the book. Well, of course, there's the great successes, of course, with Oakland and the big three, and you won the Cy Young in 02 and a three-time All-Star, and you won a World Series. Uh, we haven't seen the book yet, but how much do you talk about the great times that you had in your career? <laughs> you know, I definitely do focus on those, and, and you know, but unfortunately a lot of the way that I was viewing just baseball in general and, and my success is – I felt a lot of the time, you know, like I deserved it just from how I was raised and, you know, work hard and you'll achieve these things and didn't really have a foundation for anything that was more important, you know, than, than baseball or than, you know, winning the game. And so when I was doing, you know, really fun, amazing stuff in, in Oakland and succeeding, there was a part of me that just kind of felt like this is how it's supposed to go. And there wasn't really this gratitude and, Unfortunately, you know, that turned into a lot of fear of like, wow, how do I keep this going? You know, if if this is what my life is supposed to be like, then how do I make sure, you know, instead of like, oh, wow, this is amazing. How did how did a Cy Young happen? Who's, who knows, you know? Well, you got that curveball and that changeup, and uh, there's, a, there's a reason you got that Cy Young. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. The further I get from those experiences, the, the less I can actually take credit for them. I mean... I feel like I was throwing a curveball like most kids growing up or a changeup. I, I, I just, I don't really know why, you know, I had the success I did. And, uh, but, but I do feel that I'm really empowered now in a, in a humble state of mind. And, and again, just grateful for all of it. You know, people think signing big contracts is easy. And I like to tell them all the time, you never know how it's going to affect you when you sign something like that, and especially when you sign with another team, because now that other team, people just see you as dollar signs and they expect you to succeed every single time you're out on that field. How did signing that big contract with the Giants affect you mentally? Oh, it was very difficult, um, you know, and I think for me, like, you know, I, I touch on that in the book of like, you know, when these guys kind of re-up with their home team that they came up with, they, they have all this credit built up, you know, in the in their baseball bank account with the fans. And when you go to a new squad, you're basically starting all over again. And so even though I was still in the Bay, I, I was starting from scratch. And, you know, I came out those first, you know, few games and had some rough starts in 07 and it was kind of rough, you know, most of the way there. And, uh, I think for me, you know, just my, my, my headspace, a lot of it was really based on ego. I mean, unfortunately I was, I was really needing to feel important and to kind of feel validated that I was, you know, like kind of this famous guy in the spotlight. And of course I was getting, you know, I was getting involved in Hollywood things. So that was just adding fuel to the fire. And, you know, it, it stopped being about really just pitching well and having it in there, uh, you know, early in my Oakland career. And, and it took a long time to get back to that. And recently, Bruce Bochy was asked the toughest decision in his managerial career. 
and he mentioned you, and he said 2010 keeping you off the playoff roster, and you talked about 2010 and how uh, how you felt about that Giants team. So what do you think about when Bruce Bochy says that in all those years of managing, you know, having to deal with 2010 and you was the toughest thing you ever dealt with? That's wow. I mean, that guy's been through a lot. So, I mean, I would say I'm honored on the one hand, but, uh, you know, that was, that was my toughest moment hands down in my career. So, uh, I'm glad I wasn't alone in that, I guess, but you know, he handled it incredibly. I mean, he, he was such a, a classy guy and, and he did what he had to do. I mean, I would have done the same thing if I was manager. Um, and, but, you know, I, I embraced that failure, that, that great failure of my career, you know, because it really, it cracked my head open and made me realize I'm not, you know, I'm not the center of the world. And uh, for me to get left off that roster and watch the team, you know, win the World Series was so painful for me. And, uh, but it led me to, to really live my life for something greater at that point. I just, I just realized that my own willpower really wasn't sufficient for, for life anymore. And, and that was a huge, huge win uh, in my book. Yeah, in the book, I, I guess you mentioned you really weren't pulling for them in the postseason 2010. Yeah, I mean, and that, you know, and, and there was a big headline in the Bay Area recently about that. And, of course, you know, the, the reality is that, you know, I think any of us, when, when we're supposed to, you know, we get hired to do a job and, you know, we're getting maybe paid, you know, higher than other people to do that job. And then we end up, you know, not even being competent enough to get it done. And, and we're watching people you know, that we're getting paid more, they're actually doing the job we were hired for. And, and that's how I really took that situation. And so, you know, being just in a very dark, shameful place, you know, at that time, I, there was a part of me that was, you know, hoping the team would lose so that, you know, I, that I could validate, you know, my, my struggling ego, you know, to say that I'm still needed on this team. Because uh, to be honest, I mean, it just didn't even feel like my team anymore uh, when I just really wasn't even allowed to, to take the field with them. It was a very difficult time. But the great thing is you got back up on that horse, and they don't win the 2012 World Series if it wasn't for you. What did that mean, and what do you talk about in the book, the comeback in 2012? Yeah, that, that 2012 year uh, just – I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, I can't take credit for that. I honestly can't because it's just a real ironic thing. You know, I just, I'm a, I, I feel like I'm a good person, good heart, you know, and I really just wanted to impress the fans all along, just prove to the Giants fans that I was worth the money and that I could get it done for their team. And there was a lot of guilt that I harbored for many years, you know, for, for everything that happened uh, and for how much I was getting paid, you know, and to go out in St. Louis and that, NLCS and you know do that in the World Series too was just that was just me literally giving up that need for redemption and giving up that need to validate and and for me you know it was a higher power I just said you know God I'm sick of like working so hard to get everyone to think I'm you know worth it and and I just want to go throw that ball and enjoy it and and I was able to do that and you know of course when you stop trying to impress everyone right <laughs> then all of a sudden great things happen so do you think if a player is struggling mentally right now that this book would be a great read for them? That's my hope, you know, Chris. Like, I really I really hope that whether it's high school kids, major league guys, you know, I'm just trying to, to open up to something I think that all of us deal with on some level. You know, it, it's not like you got to be in some big high position making a lot of money to, to doubt yourself or to take your job too seriously so that you, you actually do a worse job at it than you would – 
you know, if you really had perspective. And I think in pro sports, certainly a lot of guys put so much pressure on themselves to be good every day. And usually it's the guys that value something in their life more than the sport that are the ones that do it so great and, and so consistently because they're, they don't have a death grip on it, you know, and, and that's kind of the theme of the book. The book Curveball, How I Discovered True Fulfillment After Chasing Fortune and Fame. You're the best, Barry. Good luck with this book, and we'll have you on again soon. I look forward to it, man. Again, sorry I was late, but uh, it, was, it was great to talk. We'll promote the book. Thanks, buddy. All right, take care, buddy. Of course, you can get that book all over Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Check it out. Support Barry Zito. Our next guest is one of the best third basemen to have ever played for the Athletics. He's a six-time Gold Glove winner, a Silver Slugger Award winner. He had a terrific career with the A's, battled the bad back, came back with the Yankees and the D-backs, hit 260 home runs, drove in 902 in his career, and he could be a manager coming up here. As Eric Chavez works for the Angels, and he's one of the hot names going into the offseason, we got to ask him about that. Here's my conversation with former A's third baseman. Eric, welcome to A's Cast Live with Chris Townsend. Great to have you on the program. Chris, how you doing? How are you? Uh, we're doing wonderful. What's this time of the year like for a player when you're coming down to it, there's only four games left, and you're battling other teams for the postseason? Well, am I playing for a team that has a chance or, or is going home in about a couple of days? No, no, no. You you got a chance, my friend. No, this is um, this without a doubt um, about the next three weeks is, is the best three weeks of baseball. And and if you're fortunate enough to, to withstand this, this long haul of a season and, you know, and you, you're one of the teams that, that gets a you punch your ticket in the postseason, this is definitely the best best time of the year. Yeah, and really, it's crazy where we are in baseball that, you know, the A's last year won 97 games. They got 95 wins right now with four to play. So, you know, they got they got a chance to, to beat 97. And really, 97-98 still just gets you into a one-game playoff. It's it's crazy. I mean, it, it is crazy. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the, the standings right now. And as good as they are, they're still nine games back of the Astros, which is just, I mean, right now, I mean, if you're, if you're going to break down everything, um, I, I, I think the Astros kind of are the, the most complete deep team that, that are, is going to enter the playoffs. But, you know, up and down, I mean, every team has an, has an opportunity with a, little, with a little luck. And, you know, the way the, the A's have been playing, it just seems to be a different brand of baseball, you know, consistent consistency on the defensive side. Um, they've gotten good starting pitching. Uh, you know, I, I think for the A's, it's going to come down to, you know, I, everybody knows where all the teams are hitting homers left and right in the postseason. Usually that doesn't, um, that doesn't carry over, but that being said, you know, I think, coming up with one big hit that allows your, your next hitter to come up and allow that guy to hit a three-run homer um, is going to be pretty pivotal. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of good teams, but like, like I said, as good as the A's have been playing, you look at them and the Astros are nine games ahead of them, which is, which is unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've talked about it, and I don't think we've ever seen this before because let's say you're going to have to go through – you're going to have to go through the Astros, then you got to go through the Yankees, and then maybe meet the Dodgers in the World Series. Eric, you could potentially have to beat three teams that won over 100 games. 
Yeah, it, it's absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, it's, it's I you know I don't know if it's parody or not. I, you know, there's there's obviously a lot of teams that 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 need to need to do a lot of work this off season. But um, you know, as far as some of these bigger clubs, um, get you know the Braves have, have done an outstanding job. You know, the Brewers with Yelich out have have they've almost been better without him, which is absolutely amazing. So. Um, it, it, it's exciting. Like I said, you know, it, football just started, you know, as a sports fan, just in general, this is the definitely the best time of the year. And, um, you know, there's a lot of good teams that are going to be entering the postseason here within a week. Yeah, I totally agree with you. With all the college football on Saturday, the NFL on Sunday, and now playoff baseball, it doesn't get any better. How much do you how much do you enjoy watching Matt Chapman play third base for the A's? Phenomenal. Phenomenal. And in the last couple of years I've I've been up to Oakland um opening nights and and gotten to meet with him. Um you know, the the thing I'm most impressed about is is just the the individual himself. I mean, there's you know, I, you know, I, I get to work closely with, with Mike Trout over in Anaheim now, who I have the utmost respect for. But, you know, you see guys like Chapman that, um, you know, respect the game, respect the history of the game. Um, I just love the way he goes about it. Actually, you know, kind of ironically, I, I just sent an email to the A's um, asking for a personalized jersey from him. And uh, I, I haven't asked for jerseys from anybody over any time of my career. Um, but that's how impressed I am with the, with that man, and uh, you know, the, to to win that silver, to win the silver glove, which which you know, which was unheard of, um, you know, when I was playing, is just remarkable. And uh, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm more in love with the individual. He, he's obviously a great uh, defensive player, and his offense is just starting to turn the corner. I think he's only starting to peak right now. Um, but but just as an individual, I love hearing all the good things about him. You know, Ron Washington was great for you in your career, and the same thing for Marcus Simeon. Marcus Simeon went from leading the world in airs to one of the best shortstops and now an MVP candidate. MVP candidate. Talk about what you've seen with Marcus and how he's truly changed his career. Uh, you know, absolutely phenomenal. I, and, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I think he's second to Ward to Mike Trout. But, correct, yes. Um, you, you know, I, when I was doing TV games about three – four years ago for Oakland, uh, Marcus was just coming through and he had, you know, he was booting balls left and right. And I, you know, I'd kind of made a statement um, on air saying it was a, it was a little unfair for Marcus to, to have to learn that position at the big league level. I mean, you can, you know, you can get away with a guy at first base or left field. Um, but when you have to play shortstop at the big league level and you've got to learn a new position, and you got to command the infield and, 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 and be the leader of, of the defense, that's a tough task. And, and that, that could have gone two ways. I mean, th- th- that kid could have buried himself mentally. Um, but to his credit, you know, and, and everything I've heard from Washington and, uh, and Bob Malvin, this guy works his butt off. And uh, it, what a tremendous turnaround. I mean, like I said, it, it, it's hard to learn a position at the big level, but to learn shortstop and, and to stick through the years that he had, um, and now he's obviously one of the, the top five to ten, you know, one of the best players in the game. It's, it's been a remarkable turnaround and tells you all about the individual. So you played with a lot of great players, and you played against a lot of great players. But now you're around Mike Trout. Is Mike Trout the best player you've ever seen? 
Yeah, he's, um, you know, for, it, it, it's hard to say, you know, it's, you know, I, I think from a, from an exciting standpoint, you know, for me coming up, I think Griffey was, you know, obviously an eye popper for me. Barry Bonds was an eye popper for me, but Mike, it, Mike just has a way of going about business that is just, you know, bring your lunch pail, ho-hum, you know, two for three, a homer, two walks, um, you know, eight total bases, drive in three, and it's like, oh, you know, just a typical day. And he, he almost makes it look too easy. Um, but, it, you know, when you look at the numbers and you break it down historically, I, I don't know that you can compare him to anybody. I mean, he's he's on pace to, to kind of surpass everybody. And, you know, you got to – you got to respect the, the work that he's doing on the field. But, but like, I, as I go back to Chapman as well, um, I'm more impressed with the individuals. You know, that was, you know, when I was coming through, Giambi was a clubhouse leader for us. And I, I learned a lot from Jason um, and the way that he treated people. And there's a lot of good players in this game and players come and go. They, you know, it, it, they, they told me that their career is going to go by fast and it went by really fast. And, you know, now, now I'm five years out of the game. Um, and, and there's just as many good players coming through. So um, I'm, I'm impressed with more of the individuals. And uh, Mike Trout is definitely one of those, those guys that's uh, salt of the earth. So we recently celebrated the 20-game winning streak in 2002. And it's just thinking back, what an amazing achievement that was. You know, late in the streak, the walk-offs by Miguel Tejada and Scott Hatterberg. For you going through that, what was that like when you look back at that streak? Phenomenal, just just phenomenal. I mean, it was we we literally felt like we could we could throw our gloves out there and, and our hats and, and we were going to win. Um, you know, it's just a really good feeling. And you know, I, I don't think a lot of people remember there was some talk about a strike that was going on for about I don't know a couple of weeks during that stretch, and and that took a little bit of the news and and people really didn't start talking about what we were doing until about game 16, 17. And then that's kind of when it hit the national media. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, to see the Indians go through what they did, um, you know, it, it's a, it's a phenomenal feat, you know, a lot of luck's involved. You got to have health. You got to get guys hot at the same time. Uh, all five starters got to give you um, good efforts. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a great time for us. And uh you know, the, the Indians came up short. What did they end up winning, 22, 23? I think we won 20 in a row. Um, you know, it, it, it's hard to stay that hot for that long. And, um, you know, I'll always go back to this, and I, I don't know if people know this story, but after we won our 20th game, um, David Justice, who I respect more than anybody, uh, had a team meeting. It was about the worst the worst timing of a team meeting possible. <laughs> <laughs> And we went into Minnesota, and we lost the first game in Minnesota, and then never went to the streak. So, um, you know, it's uh, it was a good group of guys. And like I said, we, we honestly felt like, you know, if we just threw our hats and gloves out there, we were going to win that night. So there's going to be some openings for managers around baseball this year, and your name's being floating out there. How much do you want to manage in the big leagues? Yeah, that's, you know, definitely. It's, it's been on my radar for the last couple of years. And, um, you know, being in the front office that one year with the Yankees when I was done, um, you know, this is my fourth year with Anaheim. I, I've gotten a, a good opportunity to see what both sides are looking for as far as ownership, as far as front office. Um, I've gotten to still continue to work with players. 
I had that little stint in AAA managing in Salt Lake last year, which was phenomenal. Um, yeah, that's kind of, for me, it's the last box I want to check off before I kind of ride off into the sunset. Um, I, I love staying in the game. Um, I've got a lot of respect for a lot of these players. And, um, you know, it's, it's everything that I've known. And, you know, I, I read somewhere sometime, some time ago that, you know, when you retire, it, 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 it's important that you stay busy and, and you do something you love. And baseball is always something I love. So it was important for me to stay in the game. And I'm glad I, you know, I'm glad my name's just out there surfacing. You know, I, I had a couple opportunities last year. Like I interviewed with, with, obviously with Anaheim and I interviewed with Texas. Um, really good experiences. And, you know, I'm just looking for the opportunity. I feel like, you know, from a personality standpoint, I can relate to players. I've had pretty even keel. You know, when people watch me throughout my career, I was never too high, never too low, just went about my business. Um, but, I, but I think I have a good grip and a good feel about, about how, how people run. And I, I think that'll be one of my biggest attributes. But, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to this offseason. Hopefully the, the, the phone will ring and uh, I'll get some opportunity. Well, one of the jobs is your hometown, the San Diego Padres, <laughs> and you're, uh, you're, you're rumored as one of the guys. What would that mean to you to, to go back home and manage the Padres, the team you grew up watching? Yeah, it, it would be great. You know, and, and, and to be honest with you, um, you know, last year it was, it was pretty well documented. I think everybody felt like I was going to get the Anaheim job that I was pegged for that. So I, I don't really – I don't look too much into it. Um, like I said, I'm very thankful for an opportunity. If it comes my way, I'll, I'm well prepared. I know both sides of the game now um, as a player, as a front office, um, dealing with ownership. You know, there, there, there's a lot um, that I've inhaled here in the last five years being out of the game. So um, I think I have a lot to offer. Like I said, hopefully I get an opportunity. I'd, I'd love to, to take the helm somewhere. Like I said, I'm, I feel like I have a good heartbeat with uh, – with people and, and how to deal with people and personalities. And, you know, hopefully it'll shake out in my way here. Hey, we always appreciate the time. You know how much this fan base loves you and will always love you. And good luck this off season. And uh, hopefully next time we talk, we talk about uh, you being a, you being a skipper in the big leagues. I would appreciate that phone call, Chris. Thank you. Derek Chavez, just like Barry Zito, really good guy. That was a really cool team back in the day. They had some really good people in that clubhouse. And finally, we're going to end with an interesting story. Normally, we don't talk hockey here on A's cast, but Ned Coletti, former assistant GM of the San Francisco Giants, GM of the Los Angeles Dodgers, he used to cover the Philadelphia Flyers. And now he is going to be a scout for the San Jose Sharks. So from baseball executive to now getting into hockey, here is Ned Coletti. Can't wait to talk to our next guest as he's driving in traffic as we speak. Ned Coletti, former GM of the Dodgers, assistant general manager for the San Francisco Giants for years. And years ago when I was on KMBR, my old partner, I, Larry Kruger, used to have him on all the time. And he was always so gracious with his time. And he's had a heck of a run in Major League Baseball and now he's going to be in hockey. Welcome new Shark Scout, the great Ned Coletti. Ned, how have you been? Oh, I've been doing well. Thank you very much. You know, it, it, it's, a, it's a long way from back in the day when, when Larry and I used to have you on as, a, as an assistant GM. And to think now, now you're back into hockey. 
Well, it's uh, it's been a passion of mine since since I was I don't know five or six years old, along with baseball. It, uh, growing up in Chicago it was the two sports that had different seasons to them, and I spent a lot of time, even as as a kid, playing it, learning it, asking questions about it, and uh, here it is, decades later, I'm still doing the same thing, and it's uh, it's been a passion of mine for a very long time, and I, I'm honored to have this chance. Didn't you used to cover the Flyers back in the day? Back in the day, yes. Almost, uh, boy, I, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but <laughs> closing in on, on close to 40 years ago. And um, I covered hockey for a couple of years. I, I, I was smart enough as a high school and college athlete to know that when I got done with, with that, it was going to be making a living some other way. I uh, wanted to stay connected to sports somehow. I uh, got a degree in journalism wrote sports for four years before my baseball career and right before I went to the Cubs in 1982 is, is when I covered the Flyers in 80 and 81 a little bit 82. So I think about your career it, it, your career has been as a, a talent evaluator and I think about all your time in, in pro sports are there going to be similar similarities between scouting hockey guys and baseball players or do you think it'll be different? Well, I think the skill set is is somewhat different. Obviously, you've got you've got different different skills you need in each sport. I think the the character of who's inside that jersey, who's inside the sweater, that'll stay the same. You you've got to have people who will compete. You've got to have people that are willing to sacrifice for the good of the group. Uh, that that never changes, and that's really not different in any sport. Nor is it really different in life or business or, or just family. And I think that you know that that characteristic is to me, talent certainly is a a great separator. But also, who's inside? Who's the player? Who's the person? Is also I think really important. And I think the um, that similarity I think is is when you've done it as long as I've done it, you know you you kind of pick up on that just intrinsically by watching and talking and listening. And I think that that is the same. I think it is different. You know, you've got you've got skating ability. You've got, you know, hands are important in sport. Whether it's an infielder, whether it's a center, whether it's a goaltender, you know, some of the, the traits of, of great athleticism are the same. Sports a little bit different, but again, I've I spent probably the last 20 years or so spending as much time as I had available in rinks and talking to to great GMs like, like Doug Wilson and uh, and Brian Burke and. Scotty Bowman, Lou Lamarillo, Dean Lombardi, on and on and on. I just spent a lot of time in their presence and in their company to ask them, to, to seek advice, to seek counsel. Uh, they would call me for the same thing because the challenges are by and large the same. Challenges of, of competition really don't vary much sport to sport. You know, I think about Doug Wilson. Obviously, he was a terrific player, and he's been the – God, I want to say he's been the general manager since like 2003 for the San Jose Sharks. He's got to be one of the longest tenured uh, front office people in sports. Tell us about your relationship with him and how this job came about for you. Well, I, I watched him play when I was working for the Cubs in my hometown of Chicago. I had a great respect and watched him play a lot. So I knew Doug Wilson, the player. Then I come to San Francisco and before he was a GM, he was still in the organization in a high-level position in, in, in player development. And so I got to know him a little bit more more one-on-one -on -one at that point in time. 
And then as he became the GM and I started to spend more and more time down in San Jose during the, the Giants off seasons, uh, we became, we became good friends and associates and, and, and people that would, would ask each other. You know, he was one of the people I would call during a, a challenging time in my tenure as an assistant GM or the GM of the Dodgers and vice versa. A lot of communication back and forth. Somebody I've got tremendous respect for, very, very smart, very dedicated, very, very well-planned in, in his approach, how he sees the game. He reminds me a lot of, of Brian Sabian and his anticipation and his understanding of when the right time it is to make a decision. And it was probably one of the greatest traits I, I learned from Brian was that, and I see a lot of the same similarities in Doug. Very very dedicated to it, as every GM is, but really he's got a, a perspective and a touch for it that I think is, is rare even among the rare number of people who have a chance to have that position. You know, I, I, I think about your time in San Francisco, and you mentioned Brian Sabian, and Bruce Bochy got win number 2,000, and they honored him today at Fenway Park. Both these guys look like uh, – you know, things are changing for them in their baseball lives. If you could speak about both these guys, because I know you know them well, they, they both had phenomenal careers. Well, they really, really have. And I've, I've watched Boach play as a player, and I've also watched him uh, later in his career as a manager, both in San Diego and then in, in uh, San Fran. And I've been in the NL West for 25 years, and, and so has he. So I've watched him manage. I've watched him uh, lead groups. I've watched him really hold people accountable, hold players accountable, and really always, always take everybody to a level beyond where they had been. Even San Diego days, those teams were very well schooled, did not have big budgets, big payrolls, but he maximized everything. And I think he made almost every player that he, that he led. If they wanted to be better at what they did, he helped them get better, and he held them accountable along. I think he's somebody that uh, when I we saw him in San Francisco against San Diego, and then when I saw him from L.A. to San Francisco, uh, every time we you'd play that team, you knew that you were going to have uh, a, a match, a matchup in the dugout where his his mind was always going to keep everybody sharp and keep everybody moving in a in a direction to to try and beat it. You can win games on the field, certainly. You can also sometimes win them in the dugout. And I think he was great at it. I don't think there's any doubt this man's going to the Hall of Fame. Uh, Saves, I feel the same way about. I think Brian Sabian is a Hall of Fame general manager. You've got three world championships in San Francisco. I think the last National League team that have won three in a short period of time, like the Giants did, may have been back in the, in the Second World War era. I think it's been a, that long. And to be able to do it, and also the 2002 team, which, which went on to, to a World Series and got beaten seven by Anaheim, which unfortunately I remember that very clearly. Um, I think that that's really a, a beginning to, to a case that says he ought to be enshrined in Cooperstown right along with Boach. And there's something else, too. When you think about San Francisco and the Candlestick Park days and how the team was, was sold or about to be sold to Tampa and the, the late Peter McGowan, great guy, and Larry Bear, Another one that, that, that kept really forging forward to keep that franchise there. And Saves was the general manager starting in 97, just as I think it was Pac Bell Park when it was first yep. uh, first opened. Uh, we, we put together teams that started to capture the fan base and started to make it a popular place to go. 
I think in the, in the history of Candlestick Park, I think it was there 40 years as the home of the Giants. I think they had three years where they drew over 2 million people. Every other year was under 2 million. And now you think about, you think about AT&T Park or Oracle Park, and you think about the 3 million people, 3-2, three, 3-3, two, three, three, sellouts for years on end. He was the architect of the baseball team. And the ballpark is beautiful, and it's in a tremendous location, and it's, it's really brought that area to life. But also, the team had something to do with it, and he was the architect of that. And I think that when you tie all those things together, plus the longevity and really just how his mind works and, and how good he was at projecting talent and his decision-making, knowing when to make a major decision, not everybody can do that. I think he belongs right next to Boach. You left San Francisco to take over the Los Angeles Dodgers. And Los Angeles is a whole different animal. And you go down there, and it's an aggressive group. They want to win. It's big money. You got Magic Johnson walking around. What was it like being the GM of the Los Angeles Dodgers? Truly an honor. And uh, I worked for two different ownership groups here. One was uh, the McCourt family. And then the other one is Guggenheim Sports Partners. It was always an honor to be here. I had a great time in San Francisco. Fell in love with the city. Franchise was great. Peter and Larry always treated me very, very well. It was, it was tough for me to leave there. But again, it's an opportunity to become the general manager of an iconic franchise. And uh, never took it for granted. Uh, a lot of expectation here. LA and San Francisco, two great cities, but two, two different cities, too. And being from the Midwest, certainly, I wasn't from the Giants. I wasn't from San Fran or L.A. So, you know, people in L.A. were a little put off when I first came here because they said, oh, you know, we got to go get a Giant guy. But, you know, I didn't grow up a Giant fan necessarily. <laughs> I became a Giant fan when I started working there. But it was, it's like any other GM gig in a way in that, you know, you're on it every day. And the expectations are always high. And when you at a market like L.A. and a city and a team like the Dodgers, your expectation is every year to get to the postseason and to be good enough to challenge for the world championship. And, and that was something that, you know, I didn't find daunting. I found it invigorating. In fact, as, as I was talking to Doug Wilson and Doug Wilson Jr. and Joe Well uh, the last few months about joining San Jose, uh, what I missed was that competition and that expectation and the accountability of, of, of being, being responsible for a, a baseball organization. One that's got a lot of civic pride to it and one that's, really iconic in so many different ways. And I, I, I took that as a great challenge and it's something that I missed the last three, four years uh, in the role I'm in, uh, not being, uh, not being with, with a team, but not necessarily, you know, having anything at stake with it except a rooting interest. Yeah. Let, let's end on this. Cause Ned, I've lived in San Jose since 1991. I got here right before the sharks when I came up to play baseball at San Jose state. And I, I've watched the arena be built, I've watched this team since game one when they're at the Cow Palace, and it's an organization that has great expectations. Their, their goal every year is to win the Stanley Cup. You know, talk about joining the San Jose Sharks, and just like you do, you talked about the Dodgers, it, it's always about trying to win their first championship. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, a, it's not easy. It's not easy to win. And, and maybe that goes back to the Sabian conversation, too. Uh, there's a lot of great teams that, don't win the last game of a, of a postseason. It's it's hard to do it, and I don't know if you can ever predict result, but you can certainly your presentation and your preparation and and the process you put yourself through. I think that's where you can make a difference. And as I look at this franchise, 
you know, I followed them for a long time. I've been following them for really almost the entire existence of it. I got to San Francisco in the mid nineties. So they were not, they were not there very long when I showed up and being a big hockey fan as I was, there was a team that I watched and a franchise that I saw grow and become really a staple of, of that part of the, of the Bay area. Uh, expectation is huge. You know, I've been in meetings the last few days and, and, um, off and on, and I, I understand what the goal is. I get it. I'm, I'm not hearing anything that I don't understand, and I'm not hearing any path that I that I don't uh, completely agree with 100% because of of who's in charge and how they how they play, and and the ownership and the fan base. It's it's made to be successful, and they're going to do everything they can to to get to the the last game of a, a playoffs playoff run of four series and win it. Well, Ned, you, you've always been good to me in my career. I always appreciated it, and we always have rooted for you. And now with the Sharks, we really can root for you. Congratulations on the gig, and I'll see you at the arena. Hey, thank you very much. Appreciate being on today. We're going to have to get Doug Wilson on to talk about this. A long time. I mean, I, I don't know if anybody in hockey's had <laughs> been in power longer than Doug Wilson in the NHL. We want to thank Tony LaRussa. We want to thank Barry Zito, Eric Chavez, and Ned Coletti for all joining us on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live throughout the offseason will be on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 4. Then we'll replay it from 4 to 7 on A's Cast. So you, you got a, you got a six-hour window to get to get our, uh, our our talk show that we do here on A's Cast. Thank you for listening for to A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend here on A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.